Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our heritage.org website. For those in-house, we would ask that courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time, simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And we'll, of course, post today's program on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference. Leading our discussion this afternoon is Paul Larkin. Paul serves as the John, Barbara, and Victoria Rumpel Senior Legal Research Fellow in our Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He served at the Department of Justice as an assistant to the Solicitor General as well as an attorney in the Criminal Division. He has argued 27 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He has served as general counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he has also worked at the Environmental Protection Agency as a special agent for criminal enforcement, and in the private sector served at two Washington, D.C. law firms, as well as an assistant general counsel at Verizon Communications. Please join me in welcoming my colleague, Paul Larkin. Paul. Thank you for that very warm introduction, introduction, John. I appreciate it. The one thing, unfortunately, you couldn't say about me was that one time I had played for the Yankees. So I guess, I guess not even comically that I play for the Yankees. So heritage issue events give a panel of speakers the opportunity to come in and educate the audience as well as people like me who try to go to as many of these as possible on a new approach to an old problem. What they can often do is give us a solution that we hadn't seen before, even though sometimes it was right in front of our eyes. Well, collapse that into a heritage book event and you'll have what we're going to do today. We have here today a lawyer, a scholar, an author, and a judge, Jeffrey Sutton, who has published this book, 51 Imperfect Solutions, which I have read, and it is terrific. Judge Sutton, as he puts it in his, as the thesis of his book, tries to explain that an underappreciation of state law has hurt state and federal law and has undermined the appropriate balance between state and federal courts in protecting individual liberty. He will explain to us today why that is so and in so doing advance our understanding of both state and federal constitutional law. Now, as I mentioned, Judge Jeffrey Sutton has served on the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit since 2003. 
Before that, he was the Ohio Solicitor General, and before that, a partner at the Jones Day Law Firm in Columbus, Ohio. He has argued 12 cases in the United States Supreme Court and numerous cases in the lower courts. Most importantly for today's purposes, Judge Sutton served as a law clerk to Justice Antonin Scalia, where he was a co-clerk of our other speaker, Ed Whalen. Ed is the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where he directs the program on the Constitution, the courts, and the culture. One of the areas of his expertise is federal constitutional law. Ed is a frequent contributor to the National Review Online, where he is famous for his Bench Memos blog. But he has also written for other publications, such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. A graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, Ed has served in positions of responsibility in all three branches of the federal government. And what he will help us do today is understand the thesis of Judge Sutton's book. And for that, let me now turn it over to Judge Sutton so he can explain to you what 51 Imperfect Solutions is all about. Your Honor. Thank you, Paul, and thank you to Heritage and the Federal Society for supporting this event. Um, nothing inspires confidence in a speaker quite like a stopwatch, so I'm going to set mine and go for about 15 to 20 minutes and then uh, have a chance to talk to Paul and Ed about, about the book. Um, I'm really grateful to Heritage and Federal Society for doing this. When I came out of my um, hotel, Hotel Monaco, at a, uh, 8 or 9 this morning on 7th Street and saw buses and everybody. I thought, oh my gosh, they've really done a lot of publicity for this event. <laughs> and everyone's dressed in red. I thought that was kind of a patriotic point and just really crestfallen when I realized they were wearing caps, jerseys. I wanted to get the book out and say, guys, hockey's a Canadian sport. This is an American book. And this is, this is the home of, you know, headquarters of our country. What are you doing rooting for a Canadian sport? But Anyway, just remember the hardest series they had was against the Blue Jackets. We took them to overtime three times. Um, so, Paul, I've, I know your reputation, but I'm so grateful you read the book, and it's going to be fun to talk to you about it. Ed, I've known for 27 years. Uh, Justice Scalia once said that Ed was his knight errant. Uh, that was true when the justice was alive. That's been true since his passing. Um, and I must say, as a co-clerk of Ed's, uh, just imagine what that was like. I had so much to learn and you know, I've had a lot of blessings in my life, but the number of things I learned from Ed Whalen during that year of clerking is, is really immeasurable. I don't want you to think it was a one-way street, however. Um, Ed got a lot from me. Um, so the one thing most people in Washington don't know about Ed Whalen when he was in, in 1991, it's a long time ago, um, he was a very shy, retiring guy who was just always waffling. On the one hand, this. On the other hand, this. Um, you know, when Ed Whalen entered a room, it was as if two people had left. Um, so that changed after 1992, and, you know, you could say it was correlation, causation, but I'd like to take responsibility for that. So you're welcome, Ed. <laughs> so I'm going to give a brief why, what, and so what. I'll save, obviously, the hardest for last. Um, the why. Why did I choose to write the book? Um, so like many of you, when I went to law school for the lawyers in the group, uh, I studied something called constitutional law. Uh, that taught just half of the story. Uh, we didn't study any state constitutional cases, any state court cases. 
It was all, of course, focused on the federal constitution. Uh, that created a real problem for me when I became state solicitor of Ohio in 1995. Suddenly, I found myself facing challenges under the Ohio Constitution, something I really didn't know existed. I certainly hadn't read before 1995. It just led to quite a bit of surprise, because many of these cases were quite significant. School funding cases, voucher cases, tort reform cases, criminal procedure cases. And I just found myself wondering, why in the world are people not thinking more about the relevance of state constitutional law and state courts when it comes to protecting American liberties? The other thing that led me to want to write the book was this reality about our constitutional law stories in this country. Uh, they not only focus just on the U.S. Constitution and the U.S. Supreme Court, but they all follow a pretty similar narrative. The narrative usually being states as villains, U.S. Supreme Court as hero. Um, sadly, there's quite a bit of evidence to support that narrative, Jim Crow being one example, of course, leading to Brown versus Board of Education. But I thought it might be helpful to write a, a book that didn't set out to contradict that story, that narrative, but tried to supplement it with some stories in which perhaps the villain was the U.S. Supreme Court, or perhaps it was quite complicated who the heroes and the villains were in the story, and perhaps try to show the important dialogue between the state and federal courts and state and federal constitutions when it comes to American constitutional law. So that's, that's the why. As to the what, um, one way to think about this project is to think about the founding in this way and what's happened since. This is a bit of a generalization, but I'd say it's fair to think about the founding in this way when it comes to federalism. Splitting the atom of sovereignty, of course, is quite complicated. If you're a physicist, you also know it's quite dangerous. Um, but the, the idea was perhaps that the federal government was going to have exclusive or largely exclusive authority in certain areas of government. The states would have largely exclusive authority in other areas of government. And when it came to rights protections, it followed that the Bill of Rights and most of the guarantees, liberty guarantees in the U.S. Constitution would only limit the federal government. So that was one half of the equation. At the same time, in the spheres in which the states were operating, largely exclusively, the state constitutions would limit the state and local governments. So American constitutional law for the first 150 years or so really operates in that way with largely exclusive fears, one set of liberty protections applicable to one government and the other to the other 50 states. 14th Amendment, of course, changes that because it's applicable to states. The 1930s changed that in a very critical way because instead of largely separate spheres of lawmaking power, you start to have overlapping spheres of lawmaking power. And of course, that's the world we now live in. With incorporation, what we now have is a world that the framers would ne never have contemplated of instead of separate spheres and separate rights protections, almost complete overlapping power with overlapping rights protections. So the upshot is that today, if someone doesn't like a state or local law, they can look to the US Constitution or the state constitution to invalidate that law. And a very critical premise of the book and the point I'm making is the state Supreme Court has no obligation to follow the US Supreme Court in construing similar, even identical language found in its state constitutions. Indeed, it would be ironic if they thought they should do that, given that all of the individual rights protections in the federal constitution, including the Bill of Rights, or at least the eight, first eight provisions of the Bill of Rights, came from 
the state constitutions. In the words of Gordon Wood, the era between 1776 and the summer of 1787, before the summer, I guess I should say spring of 1787, was the greatest era of Constitution writing, not just in this country, but in the world. So the individual rights protections originate in the state constitutions, and they can be independently protected by them today. Now, why might a state court that has the power to construe a state guarantee differently than the U.S. Supreme Court, why might it go down that road? Well, there are many, many reasons, and it's one of the reasons I'm so surprised so few litigants pay attention to these opportunities. One explanation is very basic. While the text of the U.S. Constitution's individual rights guarantees all flows from state constitutions, many state guarantees are different from the U.S. Constitution, and many state guarantees are different from other state guarantees. So at the outset, there might be a textual explanation for a state court construing a guarantee to go further, to do more, and keep in mind, it can also do less. There's nothing wrong with a state court saying, we don't have an exclusionary rule under our unreasonable searches and seizure guarantee. What can go up can go down under the state constitution. History might also give an explanation. Imagine a world in which, say, it's a free exercise protection. Imagine a world in which the guarantees are letter for letter the same in the state and the federal constitution. Perhaps the history of that state might lead to a more robust protection for that guarantee. Imagine you're in Rhode Island, Maryland, Utah. Given the histories of the founding of those states by religious dissenters, it would not be shocking if their state Supreme Courts, in view of their history, construed those guarantees more broadly than other state courts and, above all, more broadly than the U.S. Supreme Court. Another explanation why the state courts could chart their own path is simple disagreement. You might have a living constitutionalist U.S. Supreme Court decision with respect to free speech. Nothing prohibits a state court from saying, well, no, we have a majority of originalists on our court, and we're going to adopt an originalist interpretation of that guarantee. Sometimes the disagreement doesn't necessarily go with methodology. Sometimes the disagreement is just a function of it's a difficult case. Um, so Kelo is you know, a very good example of a, a, you know, the takings case, the public use question where property rights advocates thought that would be the death knell of takings claims with the 5-4 loss in Kilo and whatever it was, 2004 or 5. In the 13 years or so since Kilo, however, the states have filled the gaps left by Kilo by state constitutional amendments, state Supreme Court decisions that reject Kilo under the state constitution, and quite a bit of legislation. That's federalism. Nothing prohibits that. Doesn't make Kilo right, it doesn't make it wrong. The point is, the states can chart a different path. The other explanation why a state court might chart a different path is sometimes the guarantees in both constitutions are at such a high level of generality, it's quite likely that no matter what the method of interpretation the judge uses, you're going to get disagreements. Unreasonable searches and seizures is a very good example. We have today in the US Supreme Court one case after another each term where you get these technology-inspired searches and seizures. There's not a lot of analogies to the 18th century when it comes to modern technology and search and seizure. And it shouldn't surprise anybody that even justices sharing the same methodology for interpreting the Constitution come to disagreement. So sometimes disagreement's fine because it's just at a high level of generality and one shouldn't be surprised about it. 
Another reason why the court might take a different tack, a state court that is, is the U.S. Supreme Court doctrine has been a failure. Equal protection seems like a very good example of this. The idea that tiers of review over the last 50 to 70 years has been a productive, principled exercise seems to me a very hard position to defend. I think Larry Tribe said there are now seven tiers of review. Here I am, a federal apologist. I can't even tell you how to do, how to prove that. I, I can think of four. He says there's seven. He's probably right. And we're probably waiting for the eighth before long. But if you're a state court judge, how can you reflexively say that's a great regime and that's one we should adopt proudly for our state? I just don't see it. After that failed experiment, it seems to me quite wise for a state court to say, we'll try our own path and, and go our own way. So let me just check my time so I don't lie too often during the speech. Um, so that, that's the what. That's the what of the arguments. So now the, the so what. Well, why does this matter and why should you care and why in particular should litigants and I hope state court judges care about this. Um, well, the so what number one is that I think what I'm promoting is consistent with the original design in one way. Um, the way it's not consistent, of course, as I pointed out, it was largely exclusive spheres of power that the states and federal government has. So that's changed. But I think what is consistent with the original design is I do think the founders saw the states as the first bulwark in rights protections, not just because federalism is itself rights protecting, but because they thought of the state courts the state constitutions and their individual liberty guarantees as the first responders when it came to rights disputes in American government. So one thing I'm trying to promote is to return us to that situation. It doesn't eliminate the role of the U.S. Supreme Court. It just makes the point that they're the backstop and they're not, they shouldn't be in the vanguard when it comes to rights innovation and rights debates. We should have a little patience when it comes to the state court's role on this. The second thing is I think this approach is healthy for all methods of interpretation. Now, Woody Hayes used to say, um, I can beat you with my team and I can beat you with your team. And I'd like to say the same thing about what I'm recommending here. If you're an originalist, I don't know how you can't believe in what I'm talking about, because how can an originalist find out the original public meaning of these federal guarantees without looking to state court decisions? Read Heller if you doubt me. That's the key move in Justice Scalia's opinion, is to look and what the late 18th century and early 19th century state courts were doing with these individual rights guarantees. And one of the best pieces of support for his opinion is that 40 to 41 of the state constitutions had an individual rights guarantee, and it was treated as an individual right and not a collective right. That all comes from evidence supplied by the state courts. So the originalists shouldn't just like uh, independent, vigorous state constitutionalism. They need it. As for the pragmatists, the goal of the pragmatists is to see what works. Presumably, they're talking about a guarantee at a very high level of generality. They want to adopt an interpretation that doesn't make things work. But what the pragmatist needs and what they're always talking about is empirical data. How do you get that? But by looking at states, ideally states that are taking seriously their independent duty to construe their constitutions and see what they've done with different guarantees see what works, what doesn't work, then and only then decide whether to nationalize the issue. Sometimes nationalization will make sense because there will be an approach that works a lot better than the others. Other times they're going to realize that they're all imperfect solutions, not one of them really is superior to the other, and we're better off in a world with 50 approaches rather than one winner-take-all 
natural, national approach. The living constitutionalists, you know, to try to be fair to them, um, I think it's a bit of a caricature, caricature to say they wake up in the morning, look at the mirror, and see their view of the Constitution looking back at them. It seems to me an unhealthy caricature. What I think is really going on is the view that you've got, in some cases, general guarantees in the Constitution. Their view is that you're allowed to adopt, evolve the meaning of those guarantees inconsistent with the original meaning of the guarantees based on evidence that there are shifting norms in society that support this new interpretation. It doesn't matter whether that's a good or a bad approach. If you're going to have that approach, and we do have it, you have to be able to look for evidence of shifting norms beyond the personal preferences of this or that judge. Vigorous state constitutionalism can provide that evidence, presumably living constitutionalist state court decisions, as could state legislation. So let me give you one historical point, and this is where I'll finish, uh, that I, I think shows why I care so deeply about this and why I'm not going to give up preaching about it, so forgive me. This won't be the last time you hear from me, I'm afraid. Um, it's the story of Buck versus Bell, which is one of the four chapters in the book, one of the con law stories there. Uh, there's a part of the story that I think everybody that's an educated group knows, um, and I'll remind you of, and a part of the story I think you probably don't know. Uh, the part of the Buck versus Bell story you know is that there was a eugenics movement in the early 1900s. Uh, it was an establishment-led movement. The basic idea was to use the understanding of genetics, good breeding, to prevent there being more disabled, feeble-minded criminals in society. And as a result of the eugenics movement, about 15 states, starting in 1908, enacted involuntary sterilization laws for their state, which allowed um, the wardens of prisons and the superintendents of colonies where the, quote, feeble-minded, mentally disabled were kept uh, to involuntarily sterilize them. Uh, in this country, there were about 60,000 involuntary sterilizations over 75 years. Uh, the key moment in that whole story is 1927 with the Buck versus Bell decision. Uh, the three generations of imbeciles are enough, Justice Holmes' infamous line. Uh, keep in mind that was an 8-1 decision joined by Chief Justice Taft, Justice Brandeis, only Justice Butler dissented. He was the only Catholic on the court, although he never never explained his thinking through a, a reasoned dissent, but he did dissent to his credit. Um, so that's the part of the story I think you know. Um, for the young lawyers and college students in the audience, I wouldn't recommend citing Buck versus Bell. Uh, it has not been overruled, uh, quite surprisingly, um, but it's it's not considered one of the court's finer moments. So that's the part of the story I think you know or, or dimly remember. Here's the part I don't think you know. Between 1908 and 1927, there were eight lower court cases involving challenges to these involuntary sterilization laws. Seven of them came out the right way by the verdict of history. Uh, two were in the fe lower federal courts. Six were in the state courts. Uh, the only state court that got it wrong was the Washington Supreme Court, uh, but the legislature amended the law a year after the decision. Uh, there's a wonderful decision from the New Jersey Supreme Court called Smith, which gets the decision completely, gets the issue completely right by the verdict of history, and I, I would like to think even at that time. Um, so no one knows that story. That, of course, is, I hope you're getting the point, um, who the villains and the heroes were in that story. Um, that's one reason I tell the story, to show things are a little more complicated than we're often taught. But the part of the story that's the most disturbing to me and what I really am trying to change is what happened after 1927. 
The shocking thing about what happens after 1927 is that with the great Oliver Wendell Holmes, the great U.S. Supreme Court, announcing they're embracing eugenics, no one goes back to state court to challenge these laws. In fact, 15 states, right after 1927, passed new eugenics laws. Think of what we've got. We've got a world in which we have a bad U.S. Supreme Court decision about the U.S. Constitution, Buck versus Bell. We have lots of very good state court precedents showing these laws are invalid in lots of states under state constitutions. After 1927, the lawyers, the individuals, are not willing to go back to state court and bring challenges that had been successful only 15 years before under their state constitutions. What is going on? I, I have no explanation for why this is. Um, I used to think the problem of underappreciation of state constitutions and state courts grew out of the Warren Court. This is long before the Warren Court. So there's something wrong with a system that gives people two chances uh, to invalidate a state or local law. It seems particularly wrong when one of those chances has been highly successful for a while, and yet they're unwilling to go back and use that opportunity after a negative U.S. Supreme Court decision. So just for the younger lawyers in the audience, younger students in the audience, just keep in mind, the state courts, of course, had to follow Buck versus Bell when it comes to a claim under the federal constitution after 1927. They had no such obligation under their own constitutions after 1927, and yet no one went back to state court. So the eugenics movement ends with state anti-discrimination laws prohibiting discrimination against disabled, not the state courts, and eventually with the ADA. So I'm really eager to get some questions, and I think we're going to do it from down here. It's great. Well, thanks very much, um, Jeff, Judge Sutton, um, Jeff, for, for your um, great presentation. I have to say this is really a wonderful book. And uh, Judge Sutton is a great judge. Uh, if you read his work, you'll see that it's, it's uh, he's a tremendous writer, uh, clear thinker, uh, and really one of the great judges um, that, that we have today. And it's really remarkable that he's found the time to write this book. Uh, and you'll see the, the same uh, clarity and, and, and deft writing um, in the book. Uh, the, he's a wonderful storyteller as well, as you can uh, already see. And, of course, as state solicitor uh, in Ohio, he was one of the first to really turn this position, which now is um, fairly common in the states, um, into a, a real vehicle for um, representing the state's uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court, in the court, in the courts of appeals, really professionalizing um, the, the the role, and I think um, it's quite a contribution to the cause of federalism there. Um, there's so much to talk about in this book. Uh, lots of wonderful insights and challenges. I'm going to um, perhaps focus a little bit on some some questions I have where I'm not quite convinced. Uh, and let me let me just start with um, a cluster of observations. And you want to stay down, go down the road you were going down. It yeah. was, I love that road. Yes, a lot yes. of great a lot of great scenery. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, in your comments here, you made um, quite clear that, of course, um, state supreme courts can choose to interpret their own constitutions to provide lesser protection than the U.S. Supreme Court um, reads into the U.S. Constitution. 
Um, for non-lawyers here, I'd emphasize that, of course, the state courts still need to apply the federal guarantees when those are raised. So um, you might um, not win on your, to use one example, your exclusionary um, uh, rule um, claim and under state law, but you will win or you might win under federal law. I will say, though, that um, in reading the book, I saw, took away much more of a rights innovating bias, much more of a focus on on courts as innovators of rights and, and you know, the state courts can compete with the federal courts in inventing new rights and, and um, almost as though that's something we um, ought to celebrate. Now, of course, your own uh, jurisprudence is a model of uh, um, judicial restraint. Uh, so I'm not taking your uh, description here of what can be done here as, as, as prescriptive. But um, I do wonder whether um, this emphasis on courts as rights innovators tends to reinforce, say, the Warren Court's view, the living constitutionalist view of the Constitution. Um, I'll set aside for now your far too generous um, account of the living Constitution. Uh, and, um, I was trying and, to provoke you. <laughs> and, 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 and of course, um, to be clear, you're making, you, you argue that these rights can be invented on, on what might be called, or recognized, if you prefer, on what might be called a trans-ideological basis. That it's not a, a, it's not a one-way ratchet in terms of left-wing rights. There's a possibility of right-wing conservative rights as well. Um, but I wonder, um, I'll try, try to wrap up this first cluster of comments here. You, you also make the case that state courts should prioritize state right claims. In other words, um, rather than just jumping to the federal claim and deciding the case on that basis, they, they should first say, hey, well, you know, is, is there um, a right here under state law? Uh, I, I guess I wonder in practice whether we could really expect state courts to do that or how often we could do that. I suppose it would be valuable if, for example, um, in the years immediately after Roe, uh, state courts facing challenges to abortion restrictions were to say, let's first address this claim under the state constitution uh, and here are the reasons we think it's unsound and there's no, you know, there's no state equivalent of Roe, but now we have to go and address it under the federal constitution. Um, but at this point, decades later, um, I, I guess I wonder if it's a little too late to expect courts to get that done, to take that approach. And I wonder, therefore, whether you're going to have this um, bias uh, if states do prioritize mm-hmm. state law claims in favor of rights innovation claims rather than um, deference claims. And I guess the last point I'd, I'd make here uh, is you're, you're going to finish with an or, right? Yeah, you're, 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 you're agnostic on interpretive methodology and you say, yes, originalists ought to be, I want originalists to do this and pragmatists want, I want pragmatists and living constitutionalists, living constitutionalists. Yes, but of course, originalists don't want pragmatists and living constitutionalists to do this. Pragmatists don't want originalists and living constitutionalists to do this, and living constitu- constitutionalists don't want the other two to, 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 to do this. So yeah. I'm not sure that the uh, groundswell of political support um, for this um, would, would come out, other than, I suppose, again, if, if we're just trying to get people to cheer for um, the invention of rights that they like. Yeah. So your first question, I quite agree with you. The book is really good. 
so, uh, um, and I, you, you described me correctly. I do not think in America circa 2018 the federal courts are not doing enough to run the country. So you're right to think I have an anxiety about that. Doesn't necessarily apply to the state courts, but it's, it's accurate. Um, you're also accurate in terms of the libertarian bias of what I'm saying and promoting or potentially li- likely libertarian bias. And the best way to illustrate it is to shift to, uh, instead of a Canadian sport, an American sport, American basketball. If people start taking two shots rather than one every time they're fouled, you're going to have more shots. You're going to have more scores. That's what, that's going to happen. And so the reality is if all American lawyers, state court judges really come to appreciate that there are two independent shots to knocking out state and local laws, more state and local laws are going to be challenged and they're likely to be more successful. Um, in a perfect world, what that would lead to is more successful challenges in total, but perhaps less need and less pressure on the U.S. Supreme Court for these winner-take-all epic debates we seem to really be enjoying as Americans the last couple decades. Um, so you're right that that is a bias. Now, you you pointed out correctly, um, you know, one reason state constitutionalism it really only became relevant in about 1977 because that's the end of or the early 1970s. That's the end of the Warren Court Incorporation era. So it's only in the 70s when you really have these two shots. And one reason, in my view, that state constitution got off on the wrong foot is the initial proponent of it was Justice Brennan. And Justice Brennan wrote a really, you know, quite transparent article in 1977 saying, I'm descending quite a bit in the U.S. Supreme Court in these debates about the U.S. Constitution. I'd really like it if some state courts started doing, following my dissents and adopting them under the state constitutions of their states. Well, for some people, that was quite attractive. For people that care about state constitutionalism, it was really not a good message. The idea that adopting dissents based on the federal constitution is a helpful way for interpreting the state constitution is really quite disparaging and disrespectful, disrespectful of the state courts. The second part... Not if you're living constitutionalist. Well, no. The, this, well, the, the evidence for living constitutionalism comes from the states initially. But the, the, the other Brennan problem is it led the... It led to the message that this is for liberal rights and not for all rights. And that's why I started out by saying it's libertarian. So if you like takings claims, um, impairment of contract claims, you think the free exercise clause in the First Amendment is under-enforced, this is for you. So the point is it can be rights that um, a liberal might prefer or a Republican, um, more conservative person might prefer. Judge, now Judge Willett, then Justice Willett has a wonderful example of this in his Patel decision for the Texas Supreme Court before he, he went to the Fifth Circuit. Um, you could you could argue it's a substantive due process um, methodology. You could argue it's a nat- natural law methodology. It's about a regulation that they invalidate. He writes a separate concurrence, as I said, kind of natural law-like in nature. Um, if, if your goal in life is to get more courts and ideally at the end of the day the U.S. Supreme Court paying attention on natural law, let me make a suggestion. Don't Start by trying to climb Mount Everest, the U.S. Supreme Court. Climb some foothills. I like describing the Texas Supreme Court as a foothill and eventually a higher peak like the Ohio Supreme Court. Um, and, um, but that, that's the way to change things. And it's, it's so, it works in both directions. Now, I know it's hard for me to use the phrase living constitutionalism and for Ed's blood pressure not to just go right through the roof. 
What can only I do? You, only when you embrace it, Jeff. I'm not embracing it. I just, I didn't, listen, I did not write a book for originalists. This was not a book just for originalists. I, I could have done that. I could have done federalism for originalists, federalism for Republicans. You know, that's just not the book I chose to write. And I'm, one of the things um, I think it's useful as an advocate is to speak the languages of all of the players in the system. And it, it's, it seems to me, do I, will I be unhappy if what ends up is a world in which it's state court originalism leading to U.S. Supreme Court originalism, no, I'll be quite happy. That'll be very productive. That was not the goal of the book. And I have to, uh, the world as it is, I've got to acknowledge there are a lot of other approaches out there. And, you know, the Massachusetts SJC gets to do what it wants to do. And if the people of Massachusetts don't like it, they can they can complain. And now this may be my last answer to, I, don't, I still don't think I took as long as your question. Uh, but I, I, this would be my last answer to it. You, you might have noticed I started by saying um, I, I lost a lot of cases in the Ohio Supreme Court and the Ohio Constitution. And that, that should lead to some cognitive dissonance in your mind. Like, well, why does he like this? Does he have no pride? He lost all these cases. He should have won. And the answer is, um, one, I did think it could have been worse if the U.S. Supreme Court had nationalized some of these cases. But the other thing is I lived in Ohio through what happened next from the mid-1990s to today. The people of Ohio changed the composition of the Ohio Supreme Court. They amended the Ohio Constitution in several instances to change some of these things. The U.S. Supreme Court is very difficult to change as a matter of composition. If everybody's t- serving 25 to 30-year terms, there's just nine people. We all know the U.S. Constitution is virtually impossible to amend, particularly on a controversial issue. Most state constitutions can be amended by a 51% vote with some procedural requirements beforehand. And in Ohio, that worked. And in Ohio, the people of Ohio have been able to respond to what they saw. They've kept the more activist decisions they've liked. They've gotten rid of the ones they didn't like. And am I happy with what my fellow citizens did on every one? No. But they had a lot more control over what happened with that court than the American people do with respect to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so in a world in which there is, I'll call it, Ed, this will make you happy, the sin of living constitutionalism, there's a way to respond to it at the local level that there is not at the federal levels. And that that motivates me. Jeff, let me ask you some questions about so why state Supreme Court justices um, behave as they do. Now, of course, one of the themes of your book is that they don't pay enough attention to the, the bases for construing provisions of state constitutions differently from the federal. Um, I've certainly seen instances in the past in which um, there have been some pretty wild rulings by uh, state Supreme Courts. I think back as a former resident of California to the Rose Bird era, um, in, in the nine, late 70s and 80s, obviously the Massachusetts Supreme Court in, in Good, Goodridge in, I think it was 2003. Um, I guess one question I have, is, uh, is it your sense that some justices, state Supreme Court justices, find it easier to simply follow the federal constitution because they're somehow less accountable and they can explain to voters in those systems in which they're up for uh, retention or re-election, hey, the U.S. Supreme Court made me do it? Um, are they simply find it convenient to duck um, addressing some issues? For example, in my um, hypothetical of, of an abortion case in a state court, someone might think, well, why should I bother going through um, 
the analysis that there's not a right to abortion under the state constitution when I still have to apply the the, the, the Roe-Casey um, framework. And then just to toss things out too, um, uh, some other thoughts out, um, I think most lawyers will say they'd rather be in federal court than in state court. They view federal courts, federal judges as of higher quality. Um, you, when you look at the salaries that state Supreme Court justices um, receive and combine that with their lack of life tenure, the need to face election all the time. It's um, not surprising that those courts m- might not um, attract the the best legal talent. I'm sure there are quite a few um, uh, excellent state Supreme Court justices. And indeed, I'll note that, that President Trump has nominated or, or appointed, I think, some seven um, the state Supreme Court justices to that state SGs, it gets to like eleven or twelve. Yeah, um, so it's 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 very impressive. But um, you know, one example is um, an excellent uh, um, judge from what I hear, Patrick Weirich, uh, state Supreme Court justice in Oklahoma, um, has been nominated to a district judgeship. Uh, so you know, he's um, evidently more interested in being a district judge. Um, you know the 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 bottom of of our three tier system uh then in uh, uh, <laughs> then, then then in being uh you know one of whatever it is seven or nine uh justices um that have the final word on what oklahoma um state law is and um you know obviously we see something comparable in the the other uh state supreme court justices accepting their federal appellate positions though i'm sure you find that um, much easier uh, to, to, to understand. So um, I'd just be interested in your view on, you know, again, whether they're – why justices behave as they do, why we have the state Supreme Court justices we do, and, and whether um, lawyers, therefore, are going to prefer the federal court system, never really tee up um, a lot of these issues for the state courts to decide. Well, you know, first of all, it hasn't always been so. Um, Cardozo, Holmes, Trainer, I mean, some of the great American jurists uh, were state law jurists. And um, and I I go back to what the Trump administration's doing. Uh, they're looking for these. Everyone agrees these are merit-based appointments. They're going to the state courts to find some very good people. And you're right that those people are agreeing to take the shift or make the shift. Uh, that could be because they've it's diversity in their experiences. They've enjoyed being a state court judge, and now they get to be a federal court of appeals judge. That makes sense. I'm quite confident the if it's a higher salary, that would make a difference. That would affect my decision-making. Life tenure helps. Um, you know, not all states pay less. Um, California pays more. Um, you know, and, and, you know, if if there's a Democratic president at some point, you've got a pretty impressive California Supreme Court bench when it comes to that, Making things up. That no, that per- <laughs> I, I would guess. I would guess three people from that court would be on a short list. Um, you know, they're very qualified from that perspective. So, um, you know, I don't. I, I'm a little nervous about people that are taking jobs federal or state solely because of the pay. I'd like to think one's answer to the election problem is: uh, you offer to take a job, you get appointed, um, you take the pay cut, and if the people don't want you, you go back to getting rich. I. Uh, those are the people I want serving on these state courts. And you're, you're very right to worry that if you don't have good state Supreme Court justices, you're not going to get very far with independent state constitutionalism. But I, I happen to think we're actually in a very good era. Um, I did a 
for this Harvard Law Review article about five years ago. I did a study of the number of U.S. Supreme Court clerks serving on state high courts versus the federal courts of appeals, and it was getting pretty close to the same. And that was before the Trump administration raided the state courts. Uh, but it, the, the statistic for, I guess I did it under 50, people under 50, and that I suspect would not have been true 10, 15 years ago. So something's changing. As to the incentive system, you know, 90% of state court judges are elected. That's a realistic consideration and concern. And, you know, why you're asking why um, more state courts aren't willing to be independent in construing their own constitutions. And it is true that uh, federal constitutional law really does dominate the discussion. The doctrines seem to come from federal constitutional law. And I think it is hard for a state court uh, to break into that. I think it's even harder if they don't have state advocates really pushing this. Um, but I really don't think it's elections. Um, I, I really think this is on the lawyers and the law schools, to be candid. And the reason I don't think it's about elections um, is I, I think if you were to compare the terms of all of the state constitutions and how, you know, on one page, the left page and on the right page, how they've been construed, I think you'd see state courts as a general rule being more faithful to the language of their constitutions than if you compared the federal courts in the U.S. Constitution on the left page and how it's been interpreted on the right page. So in terms of elections, it hasn't led to worse results. My suspicion is it's actually better in terms of faithfulness to the language of the provisions. But if you want to be really crude about elections um, and electoral practicalities, what's just a real head-scratcher to me is states in which um, it's a very conservative state, um, originalist state high court justices, and they're getting cases presenting substantive due process or some federal doctrine that is demonstrably not originalist, very living constitutionalist. They, of course, should be very quickly saying, well, no, no, we don't do that in Texas. We don't do that in Louisiana. And I think they're not doing it because the lawyers aren't pushing them to do it. Um, but elections are not the problem. This would help them get elected the next time. In fact, I've often thought when it's time to retire at 65, I could go win one of these state court races so easily because you just demagogue someone to death by saying, you know, I see you've been following federal doctrine for the last 20 years. Do you agree with this? Do, do you, you agree with that and that? And I mean, it's a long list of that's. And um, I think I'd run away 90% victory. No fundraising, just be debates. <laughs> uh, I'd like at some point – uh, to give the audience an opportunity to ask a few questions, um, and now seems to be a good time, if unless you guys have uh, more of the uh, taste great, less filling. Uh, <laughs> uh, but please, okay. that's great. Well, all right. well look, here's the uh, here are the ground rules. Uh, please identify who you are. Please ask a brief question, and keep this in mind. Making a speech, and at the end asking, "Do you agree with me?" is not a question. Okay? So, over there. Uh, hi, my name is Jed Brinton. Um, my question, I guess, goes back to one of, kind of an extension of one of Ed's questions. I, 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 I love the ideas of the book. My, my concern is a practical concern. Thinking back to the folks that I went to law school with, my good friends who were not members of the Federalist Society, 
was the vast majority at my law school, and I think most law schools, and therefore most of the legal profession, uh, I'm sort of concerned that they will get a copy of your book, and, uh, <laughs> that they will think about it and be persuaded by it, and then um, you know the vast majority of people out there who are actually following through on on what you recommend in the book will be my my friends from law school who are not Federal Society folks, and then a good chunk, if not the vast majority, of the justices taking them up on their invitations in court would again be folks in that dem- demographic, and so then as a result, the outcome of the book would be primarily on the living constitutionalist, if not pragmatic part, and you'd have very few of the sort of third category. So I, I, what are your thoughts about that? Is that something that... Yeah, yeah. So um, it's a big country. Uh, and um, am I unhappy that some parts of the country think about constitutional interpretation and how to resolve policy disputes differently from how I think about it? Um, I'm a little bit unhappy, but I also say to myself, what right do I have in Ohio have Ohioans dictating what people in New Jersey or Wyoming ought to be doing. I, I, don't, I don't see that. that. There should be a heavy presumption against my playing with other people's voting rights and telling them what to do with a policy issue. If a group of people wants to live in a living constitutional state and if the people like what happens, if, if in fact, I'll make it, reduce it entirely to essentially what happens in that state is they deal with all policy through their state Supreme Court, let them do it. If that's what the people of that state want, I, I have no objection, and I, I don't feel I have any right to tell them not to do it that way. Um, I'm sorry you had such a tough experience in law school. Um, my experience has been there's a lot of very diverse states. And one of the things about being state solicitor and doing these multi-state amicus briefs was seeing the range of perspectives on issues. And I would be confident that if we let a 1,000 flowers bloom, some are going to bloom the way you like, and some are going to bloom the way you don't like. And, you know, sometimes if everything blooms against you, it's time to learn look in the mirror. <laughs> well, well, Jeff, I certainly agree with your broader Federalist vision, but I don't think it's um, sort of fair to assume that in any uh, state in which a court has been taken over by the left, that that reflects um, popular will uh, in that state. Nor do I think that a, a proper vision of Federalism would really involve um, government by judiciary and, you know, half the states in the country. Well, I'm not saying it's good. Um, I, I guess the one thing that's easy for me to say is, and I can say categorically, is in every state in the country, it is easier for the people to correct a misbegotten state Supreme Court decision than it is with respect to the U.S. Supreme Court. So it's a relative point I'm making. But that is categorically true. There is no state constitution that is harder to amend and there are some states that have life tenure, most of them cap it at age 70, but it's, it's a pretty fair generalization to say the state court judges are a lot easier to replace if they're out of touch with the people of the state. I mean, that's what happened to California in the Rose Bird era. I mean, you know, if these things go in cycles, you never know how this is going to play out, but the state court judges are much more accountable to the people than the federal judges. That I'm quite confident of. Roger. I'm Roger Pilon from the Cato Institute. Um, you're, you're suggesting that this can go both ways. Uh, you can use state courts to increase the number of rights, which Ed uh, picked up on and was a little concerned about. But I'm wondering how realistic it is to think that it could go the other way. Yeah. Um, the Especially, you, you used as an example the exclusionary rule, which is really an administrative uh, rule and therefore 
um, can be understood as being available or not available. But when you talk about basic rights or powers, the idea that um, a state can exert more powers than um, would be found under the federal government because, and therefore implicate rights raises the question that Ed raised about, uh, you know, certain there is a floor with respect to rights under the federal government. And I'll give you an example. In Florida today and North Carolina, um, it seems to me that you have funding for schools whereby the, the, the grant is given to the parent and the parent can go to religious schools with that funding. And there's a great hue and cry from the left about that, that it amounts to funding religion. How would your approach deal with something like that? Yeah, so I mean, I'm asking, in other words, how much, how realistic is to think that there is a lot of room on the other side of the yeah, yeah, so I'll, I'll answer it uh, specifically with respect to vouchers because I, I defended the Ohio voucher program, uh, so I know it quite well. It's, it's a wonderful, that was a wonderful complicated case. Uh, long before Trinity Lutheran, you'll be interested to know, uh, the, the plaintiffs in that case raised not only an establishment clause claim under the First Amendment, but they raised, there were two state guarantees, both of them kind of Blaine Amendment-like guarantees. Um, they challenged under that, on that ground as well. And I was quite nervous about that state Supreme Court relying on the state guarantees. And if that happened, of course, I would not have been able to seek cert in the U.S. Supreme Court because it would have been a state ground and the state courts are the final decision makers when it comes to state law. So one of the things I did as a state a lawyer was insert the defense. This is in the 90s. Uh, if, if you construe the Blaine Amendments in this way, you will violate the free exercise clause rights of these children, uh, was the way I put it. I demonstrated by saying, imagine a bus that picks up all the kids from the neighborhood. You've got a Catholic school on one side of the street, a secular private school on the other side of the street. The five-year-olds get off the bus. The government bureaucrat is there with the, the vouchers and says, where are you going to school? You say secular school, good for you. Voucher for you. You say Catholic school, no voucher for you. And I, I, so that was the way I dealt with that problem there. So the federal constitution is not irrelevant, and these guarantees are a backstop across the board. Now, there's a second point in what you're saying, which is super important. Most state court, based on my own conversations with state court justices, don't, I don't think appreciate this point and is absolutely critical to what I'm trying to advocate. At the end of the day, what I'm advocating is not just Brandeisian laboratories of policy-making experimentation, thinking of legislatures, but laboratories of constitutional interpretation in the state courts. And if you actually want a free market of constitutional interpretation, you want those state court judges not just to be able to, but to want to say what they think is the right way of construing these guarantees. And that means it can go up or it can go down. You're right as a practical matter if you have a very muscular federal guarantee based on interpretations by the U.S. Supreme Court. Not a lot of people are going to bring these state law claims, but it has happened. I mean, the, the Tom Lee Utah Supreme Court um, opinion about the exclusionary rules, a wonderful example of exactly what I'm advocating. Um, a more progressive state like Oregon, you might be interested to know, um, they had a decision where they said, we don't, we, we reject Miranda under the state constitution. Um, so, to me, if you're a state court judge, you, be, you look at the state law first, you look at the federal second, only if it's necessary, only in other words, if the right doesn't apply. And if you follow that approach, quite often you will be saying, 
no, um, we don't. We don't have substantive due process. We we don't we don't have that. Announce it. From then on, the lawyers in the state will know the only federal the only substantive due process claim they can ever bring will be a federal one. That's very healthy. First of all, it's efficient for the state lawyers in the state court, but it's very healthy if you believe in laboratories of interpretation, as I do. It's it's healthy in a federalist system for state court judges to say, you know, we've looked at those words, we've looked at the history of those words. And we don't think what the U.S. Supreme Court is saying is the right way to interpret those words. That doesn't bind the U.S. Supreme Court, of course, but it's quite healthy. It's quite healthy for them to hear a difference of opinion. And so that's very much what I I hope will happen. Um, You're right that there are more practical problems with under-enforcement decisions because that's why I started out by saying this will mainly have libertarian effects, which Cato should love. Um, if I understand everything correctly, uh, two is better than one. Ask any basketball player, even a third grader. They get that. Clint Bullock. Yeah, well, we did vouchers together. Uh, yeah. Over there in the front, red tie. Thank you for coming today. My name is Seth Lucas. I'm a research assistant at the Federal Society. Uh, so my question kind of goes back to your point about a uh, two-part system. You, you don't get it one shot, you try another. A lot you you've been focusing a lot on supposing the Supreme Court says uh, yes you have these rights and then the states say well maybe not under our constitution maybe there's some limits that our con- that our state constitution places that uh, we that are not seen in the federal constitution uh, so my question is what happens when the situation is reversed when the Supreme Court says uh, thou shalt not do something but then the states say but we want to do something under our constitution. So in other words, a case where the U.S. Supreme Court recognizes a constitutional right, can the state court say we don't recognize that right in our state constitution, right? If I got Such it. as in Oberfell. Yeah, or- yeah. Yeah, so that's that's a, a – you know, absolutely. Um, so this um, – it's a terrible metaphor, and I wish every law professor in the country would listen to this. The U.S. Constitution does not establish a floor when it comes to the meaning of the state constitutions. That's just wrong. It establishes a floor, which means nothing. It establishes the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. It's not a floor. It's not a ceiling. It's just the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. And if someone brings a federal constitutional claim, the state courts have to respect it. There's a floor as to how the state courts will rule when a federal claim is made, but it's not a floor as to how the state courts construe their own constitution. Yeah, you, I mean, you can think about it that way, but I just would prefer to think about them independently. They're two different shots, and whatever the federal constitution means, you have to respect it as a state court judge. It has no, zero, zero influence on what you think the state guarantee means, you a state Supreme Court. And that sounds funny, because if we think of the great floor metaphor, what I'm imagining is this is the federal claim, and I'm telling you a state court can do less. Answer, Yes. State court can do less under the state constitution. Bingo. Exactly. Yeah, but, exactly. Not, but not under the federal constitution. Bingo. My editor. <laughs> <laughs> and friend. <laughs> but great question. That's a very important point. Hi, uh, Andrew Grossman with uh, Baker Hostetler and occasionally uh, the Cato Institute. Um, I, I know you reject this floor metaphor, but I do wonder that it actually is relevant in, in at least one practical respect, which is that um, it, it, these types of claims are going to, of course, be brought in tandem, a state claim and a federal claim. And federal law has so come to dominate our rights talk that all of these uh, claims that are 
you might say, below the federal floor. Federal case law is dominant in those areas. Take, for example, free speech. When you litigate free speech issues in state court, there frequently are these tandem claims. But the court's modes of decision, especially on you might call the underbrush or, or the note below the floor type areas, it's all going to be federal law reasoning. Doesn't that make it difficult as a practical matter for courts interpreting their state constitutions to, uh, let's say, rise above that floor? Uh, in other words, to uh, address claims that are not cognizable necessarily under federal law, but might be under state constitutional law when they lack effectively any jurisprudence that's below the floor uh, interpreting their state constitutions. In other words, how do you how do you extend a doctrine to a new area up somewhere above the floor where the doctrine has never been created? It's never been drawn out in a series of cases. Yeah. The court has never had the uh, calling to interpret its state constitution on those easier or less controversial cases. Yeah. Forgive me for this direct answer, but um, it's two words, uh, Stockholm Syndrome. After a while, the inmate says, I really like the warden, and everything he's asking me to do makes a lot of sense, and maybe being in a prison is not so bad. It is true. Federal doctrine, U.S. Supreme Court decisions do dominate the discussion, and that is why, that's exactly why we are where we are. But let me tell you about a state that has not followed this model and where in that particular state you have a darth of state court decisions that invoke the federal doctrine, uh, Oregon. So actually the best states in this are Oregon, New Hampshire, and Maine. And they use what's called a primacy approach, which makes so much sense. I mean, it's an original matter. That when someone says the state is engaged in state action that violates the U.S. Constitution, they are invariably talking about equal protection and due process. Why do I say invariably? Because all of incorporation goes through due process. The first order of business in the Oregon Supreme Court is to find out, it's essentially an exhaustion doctrine. What remedies are there under state law? Can we construe the state statute to eliminate the problem? If that doesn't work, is there a reg that helps? If, if that doesn't work, does the state constitution eliminate the problem? Think about how coherent that is. What is the due process a state provides an individual? Why it should be every remedy they have in that state, including the state constitution in the state court. So what they do is they go through that whole process first and only – and if they if they grant relief, end of story. They don't even address the federal claim as they do not have to address the federal claim. Only if they reject the claim under state law do they shift to the federal claim. What's ended up happening – now, it took a long time. Hans Linde was leader of this. He started this in the 70s. But if you talk to Oregon judges and justices, they will tell you – it's actually really worked. It's been very productive. New Hampshire and Maine are not quite as aggressive on this point. Now, I'm now making an argument after saying Stockholm Syndrome where I've proved there are only three people, three states are doing what I think is a good idea. That forces me to account for the key premise of what you're saying. Isn't this asking a lot of the state courts? They decide 95% of our cases in a given year, and you're now going to throw on them this duty to build from the ground up doctrine and free speech, free exercise, and so forth. There was an article written about the Oregon experience recently, and they said it's about a 15-year project. I think that's about right, and I think a state court might decide to start. You look at the composition of the court. What are the issues they care about? The Texas Supreme Court cares about contracts, property. That's not a start there. You, you, you read um, Justice Willett's opinion. You're not going to see a lot of federal doctrine there, but – I mean, there's so many chickens and eggs in this problem, um, but fundamentally as lawyers, we can blame law schools, but fundamentally as lawyers, and, you know, 
you have to find a way um, to get the state court interested in the state ground. I'll just make one last point. When you, if you just try to look at all the cases where it worked, where you people got the state courts interested in either going below or going above, it was because lawyers found something about the history of that state guarantee, some kind of local pride, whether it's historical or culture, that seemed to really energize the state court. And that's when you get those decisions, and that's when you win on behalf of your clients. So it can be done. I realize we're at the bottom of a pretty big and steep hill, but it has been done, and it can be done in more states than those three. Judge, I'm going to have to give you the last word on that because we're running out of time. Please join me in thanking both Judge Sutton and Ed Whalen for coming in and telling us why 51 imperfect solutions is perhaps the best way to look at the constitutional law in the United States. My pleasure. My pleasure. My pleasure. My pleasure.